Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. My guest today is a self-diagnosed birth podcast junkie who juggles a full-time project management career and caring for her young family and is a certified yoga instructor and doula. She's here to tell the unfiltered birth story of her third child, one that had quite a few scary turns. And, you know, at Informed Pregnancy, my whole goal is to make sure that you have a collection of unfiltered, unbiased information about birth, about different topics within pregnancy, childbirth, and parenting, and stories of other people, personal experiences that they're willing to share to help you get a full-rounded picture. And sometimes birth gets complicated, and this is one of those stories. So I'm really grateful to our guest for coming on to share her personal experience. Tessa Lose, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. B. I'm so honored to be here. Well, you know, birth podcast junkie. Those are my people. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I think I've listened to every episode of yours. Wow, that's two people, you and my mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have so much to cover. I say that every episode, but I mean, you could literally be a month of podcasts just by yourself. So I want to really jump into it. Where are you from and how did you get started in the birth junkie world? Yeah, so I live in Ohio, and when I got pregnant with my firstborn, I just, I, I'm a researcher by heart, and I just dove into the literature and very natural minded person. So I was leaning, you know, in the direction of unmedicated childbirth. And I, like most people, came upon the business of being born, hmm. and that really got me excited. And so then I was thinking about home birth and my husband wasn't quite ready for that at the time. So we were going down the path of having an unmedicated birth and possibly a birth center. And due to a lot of, uh, <laughs> I guess we can get into that in a second, but um, my baby ended up being breech. So that changed our plans significantly. And so how it relates to me getting into the birth world, when I got pregnant with my second son, I decided to get certified as a doula. And I really wanted to be my own advocate to have a different birth experience than I had with my first. So it kind of started with my first pregnancy, but I really solidified my entrance into, you know, do the work and just being, you know, more passionate about it with my second pregnancy. Even before that, you guys had a little bit of a go with fertility. We did. Yeah. So I always knew I wanted to be a mom and we were that couple that wanted to get pregnant on our honeymoon. So uh -huh. yeah. So we tried for a year and I was traveling out of state for work every week. I was gone Monday through Friday. So during that year, we just kind of chalked it up to timing. But my OB after that year decided to do some fertility testing and all of my blood work came back fine. My husband's semen analysis came back and revealed that he had male infertility with what's called um, abnormal morphology. Mm -hmm. So. Okay. Exactly the shape. Yep. And his sperm count and the motility, the swimming nature was perfect. But um, the prognosis that they gave us at that time was less than 1% of his sperm could naturally conceive, could naturally penetrate my egg. So the urologist told us really your only hope at getting pregnant would be IVF with ICSI. 
Yeah. sperm injection. Literally, like uh, talk about an arranged relationship. <laughs> you literally take a sperm and inject it into the outer shell of the egg. Exactly. Yeah. Fertilize it. Yep. So um, we we met with a reproductive endocrinologist, and in the meantime, my OB still had an HSG scheduled for me. So the test of your uterus to see that's the hysterosalpingogram. Yeah. Yeah. So I went in for that and it revealed that I have a uterine abnormality and I have a septate uterus with a near complete septum. Oh, wow. So it almost divides my uterus into a heart shape. Exactly. Yeah. So what that revealed to us, and it was really unfortunate was that because of the septum, it's not vascular. And if a baby implants on it, you know, the baby can't grow. And then secondarily, if the baby implants on the uterine wall, but the placenta grows onto the septum, it can lead to a second trimester miscarriage. So because of the high chance of miscarriage, they said they wouldn't recommend IVF. So we're kind of in between a rock and a hard place. And the reproductive endocrinologist decided let's just try an IUI cycle because it's cheaper, it's less invasive, and just see what happens. And so they prescribed me a drug called Premarin, which you take for 10 days. And then there's on the 11th day, there's a break. And then on the 12th day, you start bleeding and it forces a period so that they can control that cycle for the IUI. And they prescribed me the Premarin on uh, September 5th of 2014. And Again, I'm very naturally minded, and the idea of this forced period didn't sit well. I thought, if we're going to do IUI, let's just wait for my cycle to come naturally. And I thought, let's just give it a couple days a week, see what happens. And I had had a period the first week of August, so I, I was expecting I would have a period there, you know, the first week of September anyway. And so, you know, we waited, and I, you know, traveled out of state, came back, and again, passed the pharmacy, didn't pick up the Premarin. And then on September 15th, which would have been the 10th day of the Premarin, I had a dream that I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I woke up that morning and relived. It was was just a dream of taking pregnancy tests. And in my dream, I took this cheapy, you know, internet cheapy test and (laughs) there was a blurred line of dye. And so I took a a first response and it was, you know, super positive. And so I literally grabbed a cheapy, put it on the floor, took a bath. And when I got out of the bath, I picked it up and I thought I was just going to throw it in the trash and I saw a blurred line of dye and I got the first response and it was positive. And, um, my husband was, he was out in our barn at the time, um, working and I just threw on a robe and ran out and I was like hyperventilating. He thought somebody died. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't even talk, but yeah, so that was how we got pregnant with my first son. And had I taken the primer and it it would have actually aborted him. I would have started bleeding. Wow. That's such a crazy story. So the morphology worked itself out, the septate. So you never addressed that septum. You never took no. it out. No. Uh, yeah. There's so much there that we could talk about what a heart-shaped uterus is, how that septum works, but we got to move on. We'll do a fertility episode soon. So that baby was breached, which is pretty common with that heart-shaped uterus. Exactly. And were you able to do things to try to get your baby to turn? I did everything. I did acupuncture, spinning babies. I bought an inversion table, hung upside down all the time. As a yogi, I was doing handstands. I have pictures of me doing handstands at seven, eight months pregnant. I did it all. I did moxibustion and I went to a chiropractor that did the Webster's technique and he just wouldn't budge. Yeah. I mean, did you know that the heart-shaped uterus lends itself to that? Was it Frank Breach? He was Frank. Yep. So, you know, if you can picture at home in your mind that sort of cartoon heart shape. So instead of the top of the uterus being kind of rounded, there's a septum or a little wall that comes down and it creates those two lobes of that drawing of a heart. And so what happens commonly is the head will kind of get nestled into one side with the butt down near the cervix and then the legs up nestled into the other side of the heart shape. And it's hard for them to turn because if the head tries to turn, it bumps into the septum. And if they try to go the other way and the leg tries to turn, they bump into the septum. So it's a common position for that variant shape of uh, uterus. It's a very pretty looking uterus, (laughs) but it's uh, conducive to breech positioning. So did you have options for birth or, I mean, typically it's a 39 week C-section. Exactly. Yep. And, you know, it's early to go into preterm labor with the septate uterus as well. So the plan was 39 week C-section, or if I went into labor on my own prior to that, I would go in for a C-section. 
And that's what happened. So my water broke. It was exactly a month before my son's due date. So I was 35 weeks and three days and my water broke and they had me come in to make sure that it it was in fact amniotic fluid because it was more of a small leak. And they confirmed that it was and sent me straight to the hospital. And my baby was born like two hours later. By cesarean? By cesarean, yep. How was the experience for you? You know, it was a lot more magical and beautiful than I expected. I think, you know, the birth of your baby is the birth of your baby. And I had my OB, you know, the woman that I had spent an entire pregnancy, a high-risk pregnancy, as they consider it when you have this heart-shaped uterus. And so I spent a lot of time with her. And it was a teaching hospital. And um, she asked if it would be okay to have the residents in the room. And she went through, you know, I got to hear just like motion by motion what she was doing, which I love. I mean, that's the kind of person that I am. So I thought it was super cool. The anesthesiologist was amazing and offered to grab my phone and take pictures. So I have pictures of the entire thing and a video. And, um, you know, we made the best of a situation that wasn't what we wanted. And I was shocked by, you know, I wept. I just wept like a baby when he was born. And I felt that love and that connection. So it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what I planned, but it was still a beautiful birth. It's really cool that you had that experience. We have an episode of our podcast called The Gentle Cesarean where we do kind of walk through how to not lose that birth moment, that magical moment where a baby comes through your body into the world, into the universe. It's a very magical moment in time regardless of exactly where they come through. And what's really cool to me is, you know, we're just audio, but we could see each other on this video. And when you smiled, when you said that you got your positive pregnancy test. It's just like a radiant smile. I can feel your joy all the way from head to toe. And you have that same smile when you had talked about your first child coming through your body, your first son coming out of you via cesarean. And so it's incredible to know and also to to people considering their options at home, I think, to know that, you know, a cesarean birth, even for a very natural minded person who would have preferred to do unmedicated on an interventional birth can be a really wonderful experience. So with that, let's take a break and then get into your second pregnancy and birth. We'll be right back with Tessa Los. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Tessa Los. You overcame a lot, a lot of fertility issues. One would have thought you might have had to do IVF because of morphology in the sperm. One might have thought you would have to have surgery to change the shape of your uterus because you have a septum. But overcoming all odds and plans for reproductive assistance, you got pregnant on your own. Your little guy was meant to be, obviously, and he thrived and the placenta thrived and he was breech, uh, which is common. It doesn't always happen, but it's common with that shape of uterus. And he tried to come out early and you had a beautiful cesarean birth. And then you did it again. Was it a concern the second time the fertility again? Yeah, you know, we we didn't know. We knew our son was a miracle, the first, you know, our first pregnancy. And so we didn't know if that was just going to be an anomaly. And um, I breastfed him on demand for almost two years and I had true breastfeeding amenorrhea. So I did not get my period until 
he was 20 months old, I went on a yoga retreat for three days and I didn't take my pump with me. And the next week I felt myself ovulating and I told my husband, let's give it a go. <laughs> and we actually got pregnant that ovulation. Um, so oh, wow. I had, yeah, had a period. You did have a period or you never had a period? I had not had a period. It was wow. my first yeah, egg being released. So unfortunately that pregnancy ended in miscarriage, but I really believed I could feel the difference and I intuitively felt that my hormones weren't balanced yet. You know, I had gone two and a half years since I had had a period at that point, more than two and a half years. And so actually, I guess it would be a little over three years because of his pregnancy. Plus he was, you know, two years old. So it was hard and we definitely grieved that loss, but we were hopeful. We were really excited that we had gotten pregnant. And so I had one period after the miscarriage. And then on the following period, I got pregnant again with what is now my second son. Okay. So for people who shouldn't, you know, medically shouldn't really be able to get pregnant very easily, you guys seem to defy the odds. Yes. Which is also kind of inspiring to people who are trying, you know, yeah. as medicine sometimes not quite sure and um, not always right. Yep. Absolutely. So how was your second pregnancy? It was great. All my pregnancies have been great. Um, I was more tired with the second one, but I felt wonderful. And he ended up being breech as well. So I started, we found out he was breech, I think at like 26 weeks. So there was still time, but with my shaped uterus, they say wherever they're at by like 30, 32 weeks is where they're going to stay versus a normal uterus, more like 36, 37 weeks. Oh, and the other thing I should mention is that with the septate uterus, they will not try an ECV because there's a higher chance of uterine rupture. And if babies nestled in between that septum, there's really nowhere that you can manipulate them to go via that external manipulation. So let's take one second. I first have a curious question, then I have a comment about what you just said. Do other women in your family also have the septate uterus? It's a great question. We don't know for sure. You know, the technology to discover this is newer. And a lot of women in the past, they would discover they had it because they would go on to have like six miscarriages. And so they, they would do some additional testing. And some women that have the septum don't find out until they get a C-section or a hysterectomy. So with my mom and my grandma, it's not been diagnosed, but I suspect that they may have because I was born six weeks early and my mom was born six weeks early. Oh, wow. You so, guys are just very eager to get going. <laughs> exactly. I was born three weeks early, but I don't stand a candle to your enthusiasm. <laughs> what I wanted to say about the ECV, so that, first of all, it stands for external cephalic version, and it's where typically a doctor would, in typically in a hospital, would try to manually move the baby. So it's external through the belly from the outside. Cephalic is refers to the head, and version means to turn it over. So if the head's up and the butt's down, or something like that. And they would literally kind of put a little bit of goop on your belly and try to push the head one way and the legs or the butt the other way and see if they can turn it over. And your doctor, it sounds like, wasn't comfortable doing that with your shape uterus, although I do know some doctors that will do it with a septate uterus. And it also, not every septate uterus is the same. It kind of depends how big that septum is, how far down it comes. So if it's little, they sometimes can maneuver the head underneath it and help the baby flip over. But you didn't have that option to you. So you had the holistic -y stuff. Mm -hmm. And I assume in your mind, you thought there was a good chance the baby would stay that way. I did. I did. But I, again, I'm an eternal optimist. And so I just tapped into that energy and, and continued to persevere and do what I could. And at 28 weeks, we confirmed again, he was still breech. And then when I went back, well, between 28 and 30 weeks, was when I had another ultrasound scheduled. And I had just gone to acupuncture. I'd also had chiropractic work that same day. And I was at home laying on my bed and ottoman in an inversion. And I had that awesome, like alien movement feeling that a lot of women get all the time, but with the septate uterus, you don't. And I felt him move and I knew for sure that that's what had happened. And so I immediately jumped up and spent the next week and a half before my ultrasound just walking a lot and bouncing on my yoga ball and doing what I could to try to get his head down and engaged and stay that way. And he did. 
kind of amazing how in touch you are with your body, like feeling your ovulation without needing a test to tell you that you've ovulated, sort of dreaming, knowing that you're pregnant, and even how your pregnancy tests would come out, like the blurry <laughs> line and all. And now also knowing that your baby turned, it's hard for a lot of people to feel it on themselves and even seasoned professionals have a hard time sometimes telling what's where. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of neat that you're so in touch. Yeah, I feel grateful. It's it's cool. So with a head down baby, then you have a choice of repeat cesarean or vaginal birth after cesarean. Yep. And I was a hundred percent in the camp of, I'd like to do a VBAC. I wanted to do it in a natural birthing unit. My husband wasn't, again, he wasn't comfortable with home birth when I brought that up. And so we decided to do a VBAC in the hospital. And unfortunately, having had a cesarean previously, they weren't comfortable with me being in the natural birthing unit, but they were okay with me attempting to go natural. And that's how my OB worded it. She said, you can attempt it. And she said, we'll see how it goes. She didn't have a lot of faith. And I don't know where that came from. But I think to go natural means different things to different people. So for you, does that mean unmedicated? Unmedicated, yes. Okay, so she, and that's where she thought, okay, good luck with that. Probably not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, did you research risks and benefits to the two choices? Absolutely. Yeah, I over researched, and I was really confident that I would be okay and that my baby would be okay. And during that time, again, I had gotten my doula certification, so I hired a doula for that birth. And we just waited it out. And again, my water broke. That was how labor started. It was 37 weeks and three days. So I made it a little bit further. And my second son was in the same horn, my right horn of my uterus that my first son was. So the theory that we had is that side had stretched out enough to allow him to stay in there a little longer. Nice. Yeah. So 3 a.m. my water broke and it was pretty fast labor. I didn't start having contractions until an hour later, but they were immediately five minutes apart lasting a minute and, you know, causing me to pause and, and not really be able to, to speak through them. And so I called my doula and she showed up two hours later at six and she's also a midwife and a monitrice. So I knew I was in good hands and my goal was to labor at home as long as possible. And it was at nine o'clock. So I had been in labor for five hours that I really just felt like it's time to go. That entire time I had thrown up a couple times. I couldn't talk. I didn't want to be touched. I was in a lot of pain, but I was tapping into my yoga breathing and coping. And so it was extremely intense. I really felt like I was deep in labor land in a beautiful way. I mean, it's the most present you'll ever be in your entire life. And so I was embracing that, but I did feel like it's time. And so we drove 20 minutes to the hospital. And I remember thinking on that drive, I feel like I'm really far along, but if they tell me I'm four centimeters, <laughs> I don't think I can do this without, you know, some assistance. And we got into triage and they checked me and I was just so engrossed in what was, you know, I was feeling and just breathing and moaning through deep moaning through the contractions that I didn't hear what they said. And my doula kind of peeked over and she said, Tessa, did you hear what they said? And I said, no, and I don't think I want to know. <laughs> and she's like, you're 10 centimeters, you're fully complete. And they said, you're ready to push. Wow. And this is, this is your first labor. Mm -hmm. You already had a birth, but it's your first labor. So that's really speedy for your first labor. Yeah. Um, and, and again, like what you just said is I kind of felt like I was very far along. Again, you're like in touch with your, like as almost you can visualize your own cervix and where you're at. Yeah. Um, very cool. So at the hospital, do they have anything that they do differently for VBAC versus? So they put you in a room right next to the OR just in case. Mm -hmm. um, but aside from that, I, I was really fortunate. I'm not sure everybody has this experience, but the nursing staff and the OB that ended up being there were super hands-off. They let me have just a hep lock. They did continuous fetal monitoring. You know, they had said, I'm, you're quote unquote, you're ready to push, but I didn't feel ready to push, even though, you know, baby station was great. I was fully effaced and 10 centimeters. My body wasn't telling me to push yet. So I decided to labor down for a couple hours and nobody said anything to me. They just said, okay, you tell us when you're ready. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I labored down for two hours and then the switch flipped and my body started pushing. My sounds started changing. And so I started pushing and I pushed for about 45 minutes, which felt really long to me, to be honest. It was interesting. And I know you hear this all the time. It wasn't painful. Pushing felt really good because it felt productive. But at the same time, 
it felt like until I got the mirror out, I felt like, okay, I'm doing a lot of hard work, but I can't sense that baby's actually like descending. And as soon as they brought the mirror up, it was like two more pushes and he was out because I could see his little head starting to show. And that gave me what I needed to yeah. get him out the rest of the way. Yeah. Just a couple of notes there. First of all, so many women say that pushing is exhilarating and, you know, it's not the same kind of pain as labor that led up to it. And I see that also as a doula and body worker for birth. I see that people have that kind of like the energy pumps up really big inside and they're excited to do it, which is different than like just trying to surrender to all those big waves and not having an active role. But then again, not everybody experiences that. And yesterday somebody kind of handed it to me for, she's like, oh, so I got up to the pushing part and I was super excited because on the podcast, everyone says that's the exhilarating part. And she's like, I tried to give a push and she's like, no way, that was not fun. But a, a big distinction might be the fact that you were able to labor down for a while, even though you were 10 centimeters, and allow your baby to kind of move through you into the ideal position before you really felt the urge to push and then started pushing. Whereas oftentimes, once you hit 10 centimeters, you're encouraged your coach to push, even if you don't feel the urge. And I think there's a big distinction there. Yes, absolutely. I, I really believe you need to respect the process and trust the process and not try to rush anything because when you start rushing, that's when things can take a turn. And honestly, had I started pushing just because I was 10 centimeters, I probably would have pushed for that entire three hours versus two hours of just being able to continue to labor and, and listen to my, my baby and my body. And uh, another thing that you said that I also see in birth a lot is that if you can somehow get a little more connected to the baby and the movements, then um, it makes a huge difference like it did for you. Sometimes it's a mirror so you can see what's happening. And sometimes even just reaching down and feeling the baby's head with your hand can make a big difference. So another cool experience for you. So the, at this point, you've had a, an awesome cesarean birth and an awesome vaginal birth, in your case, vaginal birth after cesarean. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll talk about baby number three. Sounds good. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Tessa Lopes. Kind of an amazing journey. We're covering a lot of ground in a short period of time. Let's talk about baby number three. Was that an easy conception for you? It was. Yeah, we've been so blessed. So despite all the odds that we were given, again, I had breastfeeding and amenorrhea. And this time we decided we wanted the next two to be closer in age. So I decided to wean him at 12 months. And sure enough, a week later, I felt myself ovulating and it happened to be Christmas Day. And so we gave it a go and we conceived what is now our third son on Christmas Day. Wow. That's, so you're one of those champagne babies because that's my busiest season, you know, in terms of people getting ready for birth and having babies. It coincides with all the Jewish holidays. So everything hits me at one time. I bet. <laughs> Did you know right away that you were pregnant or yeah, yeah. even without the test? No, I took a test. I love taking tests. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I took a test, but I just could tell, I could feel the implantation cramping. I had a little bit of implantation spotting. So there were signs that it had been successful. Fast forward to the end. Now you have one baby that was breech and one baby that was head down. How was the positioning of number three? Yeah. So with number three, we knew that we had a higher chance of breech than head down. It just statistically, that's the case. And so we went into the pregnancy with two birth plans. You know, one, 
ideally he would be head down and we would have another amazing VBAC. And the second would be if he was breech, redefining um, what that looked like and looking at options outside of just cesarean. And so I don't think that having that birth plan faded him to be breech, but it gave me peace of mind that if he was, I could still have more of a, not necessarily control, but just more influence over what my experience would be. And so I hired the person that was my doula for my VBAC. I hired her as my home birth midwife. And so we planned for a breech vaginal birth if he was breech with the conditions that I would make it to at least 37 weeks, which we wouldn't, we didn't know because at that point we had had a 35 weeker and a 37 weeker. And, you know, she really felt like we would be a good candidate for breech vaginal birth because my oldest noble, he was born, you know, a month early and he was six pounds, which is a good size for a month early baby. But August, my second son being born three weeks early was just shy of seven pounds. And so her thought process was, you know, you have a good size baby, not too small, not too big. You tend to go into labor a little bit early. So these things make you a good candidate for a breech vaginal birth. If I'm understanding correctly, if the baby would be head down, you'd be at the hospital doing a vaginal birth. But if the baby's breached, then you'd be at home doing a vaginal birth. Am I just assuming that none of the doctors in your area do vaginal breach delivery in the hospital? No, supposedly there's one, but he doesn't commit to your birth. It's just whether or not he's on call. So you have like a one in a thousand chance that when you go into labor, he's going to be available. Right. We have that here. And sometimes people get induced right before that shift starts Mm -hmm. so that they can have the baby, you know, breach vaginally. Otherwise, if they go like one minute over the shift, then they're going to have a C-section. It's a little tricky to plan for. Okay. So how did your baby end up position-wise? So he was breached. <laughs> and again, we did everything we had done the first day and the second time. And, and he just, he didn't move. Um, you know, another distinction is, I, I guess in Ohio, midwives can still deliver breached babies. Exactly. Yeah. In some states they can't. Yeah. So yeah. how did your labor start with number three? So with number three, um, we were all so shocked. We were expecting, you know, an early baby somewhere around 37 weeks and we got to 37 weeks and then we got to 38 weeks and it was happening and I was so shocked. And so I ended up being 39 weeks and five days and it was 9-11. I woke up 9-11 morning and his due date was um, September 13th. And as we were getting closer to the due date, we were like, oh my gosh, please don't let him come on 9-11. <laughs> it's just not such a somber day. And um, so that morning when I woke up, I went to the bathroom and I lost part of my mucus plug. Nothing else was happening, but I lost part of the plug. And I had lost my plug prior to my water breaking with my first. So my husband was like, okay, Tessa, go on bed rest. I'll take the boys to daycare. You just lay in bed, work from bed and do nothing all day long. And so that was my commitment. And I did that. And then they came home from school and work and I, I made dinner. And, you know, our tradition is after dinner, we would go play outside or in the living room, depending on the weather. And that day we had taken a little walk and then we were in the living room playing. And August, who was only one and a half at the time, just kept jumping into my lap, which is what he would normally do. And I, this little voice in the back of my head was saying, oh no, like this could start things moving. And sure enough, an hour later, I had my first contraction and it was a doozy. And for the next hour, my contractions were consistently five minutes apart and getting closer and closer together. So by the time the hour was up, they were getting closer to two minutes apart. And so I notified my birth team and I actually had two midwives and a midwife assistant because my primary midwife didn't have a lot of breach experience, but there was another midwife in our area who did. And so that was one of her conditions that if this other midwife would commit to attending the birth, that she would be comfortable with it. So I notified the team and I, you know, being a doula, I'm very conscientious and I, I didn't want to anybody to come too early. And so I was like, you know, things are moving pretty quickly, but I feel like there's still time. Don't rush over. Just want to let you know what's going on. And not long after the midwife with more experience wrote a group text. And I don't think she realized I was on it because it was an earlier group text, but she said, I really think that you should go over now because Tessa's first vaginal birth was really quick. Yeah. yeah, And breach tends to be faster is mm-hmm. what she said. So 
like a minute later, I get a text from the other midwife saying, if it's okay, I'm going to come over now. And I said, sure, come on over. And my husband had gone up to take the bigger boys to bed and he had fallen asleep with our oldest. And so he had gone up at 7.30. So I had been having contractions for an hour and he fell asleep at 7.30 and didn't come out of Noble's room until 8.30. And when he came into our bedroom, I had created my environment. I had my music going to my candles and he walked in and I looked at him and I just started sobbing and I was like, it's happening really fast. And he was like, can you make it three and a half hours? And I was like, I, I'm going to try, but I don't think that's happening. And so shortly after my midwives and midwife assistant showed up and around 9:53, my water broke. And after that, I started vomiting. I knew I was in transition so I had been in labor for three hours at that point and I threw up twice and right after my water broke, I stood up and I could feel, I, I said to the team, I said, I can feel a foot kicking down into my uterus and going back up. And that was interesting because based on the ultrasounds I had had, we were told that he was complete breach, which is another yeah. qualifying thing to consider when you're having a breech vaginal birth. My midwives, you know, they wanted to see that he was either frank or complete because with foot lean breech, you have a chance of cord prolapse. Right. So, you know, the first thing that comes through the cervix from the womb to the birth canal is usually a head for most babies, but in breech, they want it to be a butt. So both of those kind of block the cervix from letting anything else come through first, like the cord. But if the cord comes through first, that is umbilical cord prolapse. And it can be pretty dangerous because then the baby comes through and can compress the cord. And that's the sole source of blood and oxygen and nutrients. So you felt a leg coming down, which sometimes happens with complete breach because you have the legs down. I mean, this position is that the butt is down, but the legs are also down, sort of like your first baby was Frank breach, like uh, doing a, a pike dive into a pool, let's say. And then a complete breach is more like a cannonball. Yeah. So they told me that he was sitting like crisscross applesauce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. His feet were definitely down there. We were just hoping that his butt would be the first to present. And so when I was feeling his foot kicking down into my vagina, I made mention of that. It didn't change the energy in the room. Nobody seemed to panic or, you know, it was kind of funny that I could feel it. And it wasn't long after that, that his foot came all the way out. So I wasn't pushing yet, but his foot came all the way out. And so I was really close to feeling the urge to push. And this is something that in my preparation for the breech vaginal birth, just like with my first, I knew it was even more important that my body was ready to push so that the pushing phase would be fast. And so I waited a couple contractions and then I did feel my body starting to bear down. And so I got into a hands and knees position and I did... I think about three pushes in that position and he wasn't moving at all. His foot was out and just a really cute chubby foot. I have a video of all of this. So I've been able to go back and see the details, but on the push after that, I got into a semi squat and on that push, his leg came out. And then as his leg came out, the cord was wrapped around his leg. No. So Nobody panicked again. They acknowledged the cord was out, but they said it's a beautiful cord. It's pulsing. It's that nice blue purple color. It wasn't turning white. And within that same contraction and pushing, the other leg came out. And then the next push, he was born up to his shoulders. And I'll never forget that moment because one of the midwives said, okay, Tessa, your baby is born to the shoulders. He looks beautiful on this next contraction. You're going to have your baby. And at that point I stood up and I was leaning against a, a little love seat. And so I had this exhilarating, like, okay, garner all my strength. And on this next contraction, I'm going to push my baby out. And I should mention at this point, it had been nine minutes of pushing so it, it hadn't been a lot of time, but it had been nine minutes of pushing that he was born to his shoulders. So on the next push, I gave it everything I had. And it felt like I was trying to lift a house. He wasn't moving. And his arms were up above his head. They said it, he was like a diver. And so what was happening was his elbows were hitting my pelvis. Oh. And there was nowhere for them to go. Hmm. And so my primary midwife was instructed by the more experienced one to put her hand in and try to feel for an arm and pull the arm down. Mm -hmm. And 
she was putting a lot of effort into that. She had one hand up inside of me and it was extremely, extremely painful. And she was trying to pull the arm down and she could feel an armpit, but she couldn't quite grasp the arm. And then once she did, she pulled down and, and this is what she explained to me later that it was just bone on bone. His elbow was just hitting my pelvis. And so she tried for that contraction of pushing and then the other midwife kind of moved her out of the way and got into position and she started to put her hands in and tried both sides while I was pushing. And it's the most pain I've ever felt in my entire life. I, I really felt I went out of body and I just continued to give it everything I had. And it took eight minutes of this, of him being trapped halfway out, more than halfway out and, you know, head and arms in. And of course, at that point, because his body was out, there was no fetal monitoring. They were watching his cord and the cord was still blue purple and was still pulsing, which was really, really a good sign. But yeah, after eight minutes of this, the midwife finally was able to release one arm. And once that arm released, he was born in 15 seconds. The other arm came down. She was able to put her thumb into his mouth, kind of pull his head down. And then he came out. So I was standing. I, I didn't even realize he was out because like I said, at that point, it was like out of body. And someone said, you know, he's born sunny, my friend that was there. And so I went to turn around because I, you know, I, I was standing up and I went to turn around and pull my leg around so I could see him. And my midwife said, no, you need to stay right where you are. We need to let the cord blood drain down into his body. And, and I just immediately started saying, breathe, breathe for mama, breathe for mama, please breathe for mama. I, I, I knew, I knew he wasn't breathing because I wasn't hearing anything. And I heard my midwife tell the other one to grab the oxygen mask. And um, so the one midwife immediately started doing chest compressions. The other midwife was administering the oxygen mask. And then one midwife told the midwife assistant to start milking the umbilical cord. And at that point, they let me sit down and put my hands on him and, and talk to him. And my husband and I were both just talking very softly to him to breathe for us. And I had had a photographer who actually showed up four minutes before he was born. So she and my other friend that was there that was taking the video on my phone were just praying. And after a few minutes when he wasn't responding, we called 911 and the EMS team arrived. It had been 12 minutes since birth when the first responder arrived and he still hadn't responded. They were still doing CPR, but he still wasn't breathing. And so at that point, well, it took a couple more minutes for the ambulance to arrive. And then they, because the first person that showed up was just the police officer. And then um, he had been born for 14 minutes when they cut and clamped the cord and um, took him to the ambulance down our stairs. And I, that was the hardest moment for us because at that point, we didn't know if he was going to live or die. And they wouldn't allow me to ride in the ambulance with him. So I just threw on a robe and ran down the stairs. I hadn't birthed the placenta yet. So my umbilical cord was just kind of hanging between my legs. And we just ran out and jumped in our car and chased the ambulance. Um, and what's interesting, by now, it was 11 o'clock at night. And so the roads were very clear. But the ambulance about five minutes into the drive, pulled off on the side of the road. And I had never seen an ambulance do that before. And so we just assumed like they're, they're doing everything they can to try to save him. And then they started driving again. And a couple minutes later, they pulled off on the side of the road again. And then they got back on the road and got to the ER um, at 11.11. And we had to park in the ER parking lot and uh, my midwife wanted me to birth the placenta before we went in, but there was no way I was going to delay getting inside and seeing, you know, what the outcome was or how he was doing. And so we got into the ER and um, they had just um, intubated and sedated him. And so he had received um, continuous, you know, oxygen in the ER or I'm sorry, in the um, ambulance. And at arrival, um, he still wasn't breathing. So they, that was why they intubated him. But they at least had him stabilized. And, um, and so they explained to us that he needed to be transferred to a larger hospital that had a, a good NICU. 
And then the doctor's recommendation was that he would undergo uh, hyperthermia treatment for three days to help prevent potential additional brain damage. And I say additional because when the baby goes that long without breathing, you know, they run these tests that assess acidosis and other things to diagnose encephalopathy, which is brain swelling. And if they suspect, or if there are enough flags that point to encephalopathy, then the hypothermia treatment can help the brain to, to not swell any further and to get more stabilized before being rewarmed. This is what we agreed to. So then my midwife and I went into the ER bathroom and I birthed my placenta into the toilet there. And they said it would take about an hour to get him transferred. So we lived like 10 minutes from the ER. So we went home and my midwife checked me and um, I had no tears. So I was in good shape and the placenta had looked good. It was complete. And so we just quickly packed a bag and went up to the NICU and things moved really fast. I mean, by the time we got to the NICU, he was already in the cooling pad and the neonatologist was very honest and upfront with us and just said, it's, you know, we have to wait. It'll be three days that he's on this cooling pad in a state of hypothermia. And after the third day, we'll begin to rewarm him, but you should expect to be here for at least a couple weeks. And then he'll step down to a step down unit when he's ready. And then you'll be discharged home. But as far as whether or not he's going to have any challenges, there's a wide range and it's just a waiting game. And so we just stayed by his side for those three days. And what was amazing is that within the first 12 hours of life, he started breathing on his own over the intubation. And so they said, because he was trying to breathe and his lungs were trying to strengthen that they wanted to extubate him because you never want to intubate somebody who can breathe because it weakens their lungs. And so they actually extubated him at 12 hours old and he continued to breathe just fine for the remainder of his hypothermia treatment. Unfortunately, because he was no longer intubated, he could not be sedated. So that meant he had to feel, you know, the sensations of being in a hypothermic state for three days. So that was really hard for us because he was obviously, you know, crying and very uncomfortable. But after the three days, they rewarmed him over a six hour period. And at that point, we got to hold him for the first time, <laughs> which was amazing. And I got to breastfeed. <laughs> he was on a feeding tube. So he wasn't necessarily very hungry, but he did latch. And so I advocated for myself that night to this amazing nurse. You know, what they really wanted to see was can he feed? Because that's the first big milestone for any baby. Can they feed? And I told her, I said, you know, he's latching, but he's not, he's not vigorously trying to feed. And I think it's because he's not hungry. Can we please turn off the feeding tube, keep it intact, just turn it off, let him get hungry and then see how he does. And she advocated for me that night, that night nurse with the resident on staff, and they agreed to this plan. And he immediately breastfed as if he had just been born. I mean, he nursed beautifully, gained weight with each feeding. And they took out the feeding tube in the morning completely. Wow. And um, that next morning is when they, they did an MRI to see how his brain looked. The next step was to see can we find any organ damage? And um, his MRI was completely clear. Oh, wow. And we were discharged from the NICU the next day, straight from the NICU. And kidding. our nurse home? was like, yeah, she was like, this is a miracle. We never discharge straight from the NICU. They always go to step down. And at this point, he was only six days old. <laughs> so it was... You know, was, that is pretty miraculous. And also... We're going to do a whole episode on neonatal cooling because it's an incredible technological advancement in NICU that's really saved a lot of babies from bad things happening to them. And it's a little hard to understand what's happening, but we're going to do a whole episode on there. I'm so grateful that he's okay. I mean, in the end, was there any any developmental issues? Not yet. I mean, he just turned one. 9-11 a couple days ago from when we're recording this and um 
so far he has hit every major milestone and not just hit it, but hit it before my older boys did. And so I've felt this wow. grace of God just being, you know, re reminding us and telling us not to worry yeah. and to just trust. And I mean, I can't even explain to you what an angel, this beautiful baby is. His name is Redding. We call him Red. And he is just such a joy. Yeah, he's just amazing. And we're so grateful. I mean, all through that story, a million questions popped into my head, and obviously I can't get to them all. Um, one question I have is, was there a heartbeat the whole time? There was not. Um, so he did. He did so no pulse, no breathing. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the midwives were able to recover his heart rate. With chest compressions? With chest compressions. And then the EMS team was able to maintain it. Did you find out why they were pulling over? Yes, I did. So the first time was a, it was a attempt at intubation, unsuccessful. Oh, in the ambulance. In the ambulance. And I should mention this too. The ambulance didn't have a uh, neonatal size oxygen mask. Okay. And thank God for my midwives thinking they, about that before they left because they yelled out as they were running downstairs with my baby, they yelled out, do you have a neonatal mask? And the one, you know, EMS guy said no. And so they ran it over their tank and mask for them to use. And yeah, so the heart rate, they were able to keep the heart rate. So his APGAR scores were zero, zero. And then once he was in the ambulance, they gave him an APGAR of two because they were able to keep the heart rate going. And um, his coma scores the whole time were zero. They couldn't intubate him. I mean, first of all, it takes a special medic to be able to intubate a, a newborn. Mm -hmm. But um, are you saying they did have the right equipment, like the right tube and stuff, but they just weren't able to do it? They just weren't able to do it, yeah. And, and then, then the second time? The second time, they attempted an intraosseous line, so just creating a port so that once he got to the ER, it would already be available for them to push any medication they needed to. And the first attempt was unsuccessful in the one leg, and then the second attempt on that same stop was successful on the other leg. And I'm glad that you asked because, you know, my midwives and I have debriefed this so many times. And one theory we have is that that second IO that was successful gave his body a natural shot of adrenaline. I mean, imagine something being drilled into the bone of your leg that like gave his system a jolt, just like an EpiPen would for someone that has an allergy. And that's what got his heart to respond and to start to maintain a, a beat that they could assess again a million questions but two more before we just naturally have to wrap it up one is uh, you were able to thank your emts afterwards yeah T tell me about that yeah so i received a phone call when red was about a month old from a woman whose sole job is to be an advocate for emts because they go through a lot and she wanted to check in on how reading was doing and she told us, she just said, you know, your story is remarkable. And these guys, a lot of them were young EMTs. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, she's like, we see a lot of runs that don't end well. And so in a situation like this with a brand new baby that has a positive outcome and that they were able to do this amazing job and the coordination of care between the midwives, the EMTs, and then the staff at the hospital, she said, we'd like to invite you to come and honor them for their work. And we're going to have the medical, you know, chief of the medical staff at the hospital come as well. So it's just going to be everybody that was involved and just congratulate them and lift them up for the work that they did. And so we went as an entire family and were able to meet and thank them and get some pictures and hugs and show them, you know, how, how amazing our baby was doing at the time. So it was a beautiful, beautiful event. And I think it was, it was really healing for all of us because, you know, we consider everybody involved a hero. If just one person had been swapped out for someone else, it may not have been the outcome that we have. And so, yeah, that was incredibly, incredibly special. And we have other plans to go. And when he starts walking, which is really, he's really close. When he starts walking, I'm going to work it out with the chief of the fire department to make sure that all the guys are there that were involved and surprise them with him walking in through the doors. <laughs> Amazing. That's so beautiful. And, you know, always I feel like when we're on the same team, you know, the home birth team 
the emergency medical team, the hospital, and the OBs also. The more we work together, the better and safer and more supported of an experience it is for our patients. I have so many questions about why weren't you allowed to go in the ambulance and what was going through your mind at those times. And, you know, your husband initially wasn't comfortable with home birth. And how did that sort of aftermath and did you feel guilt and did you feel shame and how did uh, other people in your family or around you respond when you told them you were going to do a home birth and after the experience that actually took place we go on for a long time i really want to maybe we'll come back and do a part two but the question that kind of goes through my mind right now is um, you did research you didn't just make this decision without looking into it If in your research you came across this episode of our podcast, would it have changed your decision? Wonderful question. So I did a lot of research and I never came across a story like mine, even though I know that they exist. But I have to say, knowing what I know now, it would not change my decision. And there are a lot of reasons, but one that I didn't really dive into very deep, but it's worth giving a little bit more attention is that because my midwives milked his umbilical cord and kept it intact, I believed it not only saved his life, but it saved his quality of life. And we don't know why he didn't breathe at birth. His cord never stopped pulsing. So had his fate been that he was not going to breathe, even if he had been delivered via C-section, I would rather that his care during those critical first 15 minutes were in the hands of people who kept the lifeline intact and milked the cord. I know that there are hospitals whose policy, most hospitals, if you're if the baby needs resuscitated, it's immediate cord clamping, baby's taken to the other side of the room, and that's where they start resuscitation. And I think that that needs to change. And so, again, not knowing exactly why he didn't respond right away at birth, I'm just so grateful for the team that I had. And, you know, our outcome is that we have a healthy, beautiful baby. So, again, this is all retrospective. It's what I know now. Mm -hmm. But I think if I heard somebody telling that story the way I'm telling it, what I know now is that he was still in the best capable hands. I mean, had he been head down and born vaginally and not breathing, I would rather him be in the hands of midwives who would milk the cord and keep it intact than be in a hospital setting where they'll cut and clamp the cord and potentially even have a timer on how long they'll attempt resuscitating before they call it death. And I know there was another woman in a group that I'm involved in that her hospital, they'll do it for 10 minutes. And if after 10 minutes, there's no response, they call it. And my son needed resuscitated for 30 minutes. So I don't know if that answers your question well, but I genuinely, I'm in a place of accepting our birth and honoring it for what it is and honoring the people involved and believing that this was our fate and being grateful for it. We're better for it. And he's healthy. So I don't think it would have changed my decision hearing it in this context. I know not everybody has that experience. A lot of people don't that have any sort of birth trauma, whether it's head down, breach, cesarean. But in my case, I wouldn't take it back. I can't. I have a healthy baby. Mm -hmm. You're so strong and inspiring to me, just um, being able to to take your experiences and speak about them so openly, all the way from fertility before you even had your first kid, through this very scary experience with your third child. I appreciate you, and I appreciate you sharing your story so honestly, raw and open. And I know that it's going to help other people get a more full perspective on some of the things that can happen at birth, and will help them make better informed choices just by having a more complete picture. So thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations to you. And do you think you'll have more kids? I do. You do. (laughs) All right, then we'll have to have you back again. (laughs) Yeah. Wait till you hear this episode as a birth podcast. Thank you. <laughs> like this one. Uh, at home, thanks for listening to our podcast. If you like our program, share us with your friends, leave us some feedback, give us some stars, and visit us at informedpregnancy.com. Informedpregnancy.com. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a whole lot.
This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Balm. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Balm, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. <laughs> 